This evening we'll be considering God's word together from 1 Samuel chapter 3. And in a moment I will invite you to turn there, but first it's right, it's good for us to draw near to the Lord and ask that he would indeed speak. As Samuel asks him to do, as we have just prayed in this song that we've sung, let's call upon the Lord. Our Father, we thank you that you have given with your Son, the Holy Spirit, to be our teacher, to be the one who unfolds to us the things of your word, disclosing Christ to our souls, making known to us all that you are as our gracious and tender Father. We pray, O gracious God, that you would hear our petition. We draw near, yes, we do draw near with expectation, but also that humble acknowledgement that we will never hear unless you enable and open our ears and speak to us. Oh, our God, may your word come by the power of the Holy Spirit to give us that clear sight of Christ and to make us lovers of you. May we hear your voice, O God, the voice of our beloved in the garden calling us into the springtime of our souls. May we hear. May we rejoice. May we seek you and follow. Draw near to us, we pray, and speak, O Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 3. We'll read the whole of the chapter this evening. You'll find that on page 227 in your Bibles that are in the backs of the pews. 1 Samuel chapter 3. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again, the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end, and I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever. 
for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord, and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. This is God's precious, holy, wonderful word. I haven't yet experienced it. But I understand as you get older and you begin to lose some hearing, if you go to a hearing doctor, they'll test certain ranges of your hearing and you'll discover maybe that there are things that were missing that were there before. For some of us, it might already be missing if you can't hear your wife as often as you should. But the same thing is true also with eyesight. Things grow dim, do they not? And I've just learned in the last year and a half that now I need glasses just to read. This is the progress, really, of the burden of sin in the world pressing down, weighting us down with a sense of the glory that will come. But it's difficult growing old. It's difficult growing deaf and growing dim. This is a text that invites us to truly hear and see again. God's people have begun to grow deaf their eyesight to grow dim. And he is determined. He here records for us. He is determined that the light will not go out of his church, though it may for a time grow dim. I'd like you to see this, first of all, how the light of God's word may grow dim in his church. Notice what it says in verse 1. Of course, we read about the young man Samuel, but we also read that the word of the Lord was rare precious in those days. There was no open or frequent vision. Don't you get the sense this is not how things are supposed to be? The word of the Lord rare. This is the God who fellowships with his people, who wants to speak to his people, makes himself known to us, walks with us, speaks with us, but he's not speaking to them. Or at least they're not hearing him. And when we think about the period, it's the period of the judges we're coming out of here. It's a season of mourning and real deprivation and fear. A spiritual darkness pervades everything because God's people have really sinned against him. Think about all the sins of which you can read there in Judges. God commanded them, go take possession of their inheritance. They did not. They began instead to fight one another. There's division. There are murders. There's sexual perversity of the most grievous kind. The idols of the nations, the ways of the nations come to characterize Israel. They deserve his judgment, and in God's judgment, he takes away his word. If you're looking for a period title 
for this season of Israel's life, up until Samuel comes on the scene, I think you can call this the Dark Ages. These are dark times. And one of God's greatest judgments in such darkness is to remove the light of his word. Now, maybe some of us would think, the word removed, that might be a relief. Fewer sermons, no more Bible verses that get in there and correct my soul in difficult ways. Freedom! But it's really not so. It would be your greatest sorrow, this side of hell, to lose the word of God. Amos 8, verse 11 says this. The prophet records the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Think of what it means to starve to death. A famine, not of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. That's what's happening here in the time of Eli. The people of God are starving to death. It is just darkness. Think about Saul, the judgment that comes upon him when he dishonors and turns away from the Lord, sins greatly against him, and what does the Lord do? Saul cries out to the Lord, and God does not speak to him. People in societies where the word of God is not are not free, though we are told that secularism is really the answer. Just you do your thing and I'll do mine. Secularism is not the answer. It's really slavery to terror and despair. And that is what Israel has been doing really for some time now, even We read of Moses' words in Deuteronomy 29, some of his parting words. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants, to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, and those great wonders. In other words, if anyone should believe and really see, it's you. And he says next, But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to see. To hear. Things really haven't changed. God's people don't hear the word. It is rare. They are deaf to it. Their sins have separated them from their God. And the person in whom this is most visible and apparent is Eli. Eli is actually the leader of Israel. Israel is fragmented and dysfunctional, if you remember the book of Judges. But Eli is really the de facto leader of Israel. The leading men and women in the book of Judges are described as judges. It's sometimes translated. We could say saviors is another translation. This is how Eli is spoken of in 1 Samuel 4.18. He judged Israel 40 years. He's the last, in a sense, although perhaps Samuel really is, the last of the great judges. Here is the judge supposed to set things right for God's people, rescuing them from their sin, rescuing them from their enemies. Here is not just a judge, but a sort of functional king, even also a priest. And as a priest, one to set forward God's holiness with such clarity, such beauty that God's people will desire his holiness because the Lord their God is holy. And it says... Eli's eyes have grown dim. It's really a powerfully evocative scene all through this chapter. And the wordplay behind is is really significant and wonderful. There's light and sight and words and sound, and we're drawn into a kind of a sensory experience. But I want you to notice Eli's physical blindness. It says the vision of God was rare 
It wasn't breaking out, could be a more literal translation. Like the light of the sun dawning on the horizon, imagine a day with no light. We get a few of those in Wisconsin, but think darkness. The sun is supposed to come up, and it doesn't. And this is what is said about Eli. His eyes are beginning to go out, dimming. And by the time we get to chapter 4, verse 15, he will be blind. There's a progression taking place, even in his physical well-being, that demonstrates the deeper blindness. And this is where we ought to be more captivated, his spiritual blindness. It's not just physical. He has a darkened soul. Think of the chronology of of Eli for a minute here. Chapter 1. Here comes Hannah, a godly woman, and he can't distinguish between a desperate worshiper and an inebriated drunk. Chapter 2, we read of the wickedness of his sons who are blaspheming God, taking the meat of God's sacrifices, taking up with the women who come to worship, and Eli rebukes them. They're hardened, of course, they don't listen, but Eli, we find, is actually complicit. We read in the prophecy in chapter 2, he may disagree with them, but he's filling up at their sacrilegious table And so he honors his sons above the Lord. Now we come to chapter 3, and in the message that Samuel will receive from the Lord in this chapter, we find even a further declaration of Eli's complicity. He doesn't stop them. He doesn't restrain them. When it was his duty as a priest to guard against all impurity in the worship of God, we find out that his rebuke is really pretty lackluster, lukewarm, His love for the holiness of God is pretty lukewarm itself. So diminished is his insight into who God is and who is speaking that when the Lord calls Samuel, although he does eventually recognize Eli doesn't until the third time. A little bit of a message there. The guy who's supposed to be leading Israel, hearing the word of God, doesn't recognize God speaking. And it just gets darker. The one man who is the leader of Israel, the big man in Israel, doesn't know God, is incapable of unfolding for God's people the light of his revelation. He is himself blind. And as the Lord Jesus says, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? He can't see. And we could put it this way. He doesn't see because he really can't hear. Now, to be sure, Eli is a mixed person, and who of us isn't? There are some flecks of good that come out here and there, a little bit of light, a little bit of insight, but his darkness is great. The light is going out in Eli and from Israel in general. He hasn't just lost sight. He has lost sight of God. He has grown deaf to the word of God. And here we come to a sort of implicit Not just warning, but maybe even rebuke to us as believers. Could that be us? Have our eyes grown dim? Can we feel that plague of darkness so thick you can feel it? Lacking the word of God, failing to be drawn to Christ by the word, to speak of his worthiness, to worship him as he deserves, to carry out our duty to him in love because we've heard the word, not adoring him for his glory. And if that is us, then we are to repent and do the works we did at the beginning of our walk with God. Eli is really then a representative of the whole church in his day and of the church in some ways in our own day. There is blindness and darkness over all of Israel 
and the church is growing dark. The church, it's a startling thing to say. The church that Jesus forms by the declaration of his word, by his own unveiling of God in himself, the church that cannot exist apart from his speech, the church that exists because of God's promises, the God who called Adam and Eve out of their transgression and said that I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman to the serpent, enacting a pledge and a covenant to Abraham, renewing that at Sinai, settling on David and his house, his promises, finally sealing and renewing all of these things, bringing them to fullness in the new covenant made in the blood of Christ. The church is the living embodiment of the word of God. The church cannot exist or survive without the word of God. The word is, as some of the older writers would put it, the mark of the church. Think of what it says in Belgic Confession, Article 29. The true church is to be recognized by the following marks. It practices the pure preaching of the gospel. It maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. It exercises church discipline for correcting and punishing sins. In short, or we might say in summary, it governs itself according to the pure word of God. If the light goes out, the church no longer exists. We need the word not simply as a sort of constituting document that can be reinterpreted however we like or forgotten at will, not a manual that we can ignore and only refer to when things go very, very wrong. We need the word for survival, the light of the word for our very existence. The word reveals the light as it is in Jesus. We must have the word of God. Think of the state of the church in the United States of America. Much good, isn't there? We thank God for that, and we really should. There is much good. But according to a recent study, less than, hear this, less than 50% of evangelical Christians read from the Bible every day. And we know, those of us who have been around to various churches, that worship in many churches is not consistently according to Scripture. We know that the sermon might or it might not find its starting point in the Bible, if there even is one. The church, I dare say, is losing its not just most significant mark. It's life. It's light, even in our day. Woe betide the church when it loses the word. Now, you you see the buildings going on. You see congregations going on. Does that mean that it really isn't that necessary? No, by all means, it is necessary. It cannot remain as the church, even if it calls itself that, as long as the word is gone. Even if we settle into a kind of decline and turn away from the word, we will find ourselves rebuked by Christ that we are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, that where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained and perish. As the Lord says in Hosea, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. So what's wrong with the church today? It's pretty easy to point fingers. Lots of answers could be given. Could it be that our sight and sense and taste of the word of God has grown diminished? Here we are opening the Word of God together in public worship. Here we are together adoring God, wanting to do so in a way that honors Him by the Word. 
But do we have it in our homes? Is it opened every day? Do we improve the sermons and the sacraments that we participate in with prayer and faith? Do we think upon and actually open our Bibles, meditate upon them, and by God's grace begin to engraft it into our life? Do we even read it? Do we take seriously the commands, the comforts, as well as the promises and the warnings of Scripture? Do we really recognize this is the voice of God speaking to us? Imagine a day when your children and mine would never hear the gospel. Imagine a day in which the beautiful grace of God in Christ would not be known because the word is not known. Let's not point fingers. Let's just recognize this is the trajectory of our hearts. Unless God does something, the word will not be preserved, and we will not be preserved on the word. What I'm doing here is really pleading with all of us, including myself, to preserve our lives. (laughs) To think of this as a, a matter, really, of life and death. To hold on to Christ by his word. To keep the word The lamp we read here in 1 Samuel 3 has not yet gone out. It's really, really striking. This interplay between light and darkness, things happening at the night, God speaking, people hearing or not hearing. We don't need to give in to pessimism. God is a God who will keep that lamp burning. But we are surely in danger of that same threat with which Jesus speaks to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, that if we do not repent, he will come quickly and remove our lampstand. That's the danger here. For Israel, we can see their precarious situation. The church is in trouble. Here's the great judge, the priest, as it were, a sort of de facto king, Eli, and his heart is set on honoring his children over the Lord. He has heard, he has known the word of God, but he hasn't honored the God of the word. And yet, there is still hope. The light has not yet gone out of the tabernacle. This is so telling and so wonderful that God speaks of this in his word. The light hasn't gone out. It's night. One commentator says perhaps that is even telling us, the text is telling us that it's drawing near to the dawn when the lamps would be trimmed again. The lamp, however, is a light. What is that lamp doing there? Testifying that God is the one who has commanded light to shine out of the darkness The very God who has called all things into existence, things that were not by his speech, who gives life to the dead, continues to demonstrate the power of his life and of his word. The lamp in the tabernacle is still burning. There is still hope, however it may seem. Indeed, this is one of the commands that was given to the priests. Leviticus 24, verses 1 through 4 The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light might be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. Did you catch that word regularly? In other words, this is a lamp that is not to go out. I don't know if you've ever seen a sort of eternal flame. 
They're in various places in the world. There's one that we visited not that long ago, um, right there at the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. You can go to their Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, and there is the eternal flame commemorating the soldiers who died in World War II from France. It's not to go out. God intends a much more certain light for his church. He will bear witness to the light of the gospel of Christ. In the darkest day, he will not leave his church without his witness. Christ himself will tend it. It will not be put out. This is one of the glorious things that we read of, isn't it? In Revelation chapter 22, there will be no more night. And why is this? They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. What a happy condition. In which we continually hear the word of God, behold his face, and are drawn to him in love. And even now, God has determined that his light would shine in the darkness of our unbelief. And he would sustain his church in that light. And the first indication of this, besides the lamp, is a boy. We read that near to the ark, near to the lampstand, resting in the presence of these holy copies of heavenly things, wanting to be near to God, is a young man. There he is, sleeping. And yet his eyes can see, his ears can hear, the voice of God calling in the darkness. This is how God often speaks to his prophets. He speaks in the night. Think about when does Daniel behold the visions of the Lord? It's in the night. Zechariah, read through it. You find Zechariah perceiving the word of God, the vision of God in the night. This is characteristic of God's prophets. They see when others cannot. They are true seers. And this is really an open declaration of God's sovereignty. He will put forward his word in the darkness. He will make himself known to the eyes of the blind and make visible what is presently mysterious. And even through this particular prophet, Samuel, restore the light of the gospel to the church. And so Samuel is established to be a prophet. Priests get their title and their position by inheritance from their forefathers, Prophets get their, their calling from God who speaks to them. And so we have a figure here of one who is called, one who ultimately is generated from God himself, this type of Christ, this Samuel, picturing to us the Lord Jesus Christ from the bosom of the Father, inheriting all that the Father is, called by the Father that there might not even be the darkness of the tomb that can overwhelm and hinder the power of his rising. So secondly, and more briefly, notice how God determines to renew the light of his word in his house. It's God's custom. We know this from history. We know this from what Paul says in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. God's custom is not to call the wise or the powerful or those who are titled, and Samuel is anything but. Samuel, a young man, but a man whose life, character, origins, youth even, show us the pattern of the very Son of God. And we hear God calling to Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. Think of this. Out of the whole nation, this perhaps even at this point still a little boy, is the only one to hear the word of God, but he hears it. He really hears it. 
And we can imagine the irritation, I suppose, of Eli. I didn't call for you the third time. It's surely gotten old by then. But this is how God calls us prophets. He calls them, even as he spoke to Moses from the burning bush, drawing him near and giving to his prophets the secret counsels that he reveals. As it says again in Amos, the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. God is doing something unusual to a people that we probably would have abandoned and just said, let them go on their way. God's had enough. Think about everything that happened in the wilderness, and then they finally come into the land of blessing, and now they reject God again and again. They will not listen to the word, and God is determined from that terrible darkness, not knowing him, not loving him, not even appreciating, understanding, and perhaps even in many cases even having his revealed word. God raises up a prophet, and a prophet who says, Lord, speak because I'm listening. When we think of Samuel listening, we ought very quickly to move our thoughts to Jesus. Hebrews 10 quotes from Psalm 40 to tell us of the ministry of Jesus. Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required, Then I said, Behold, I have come, and the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. What is it that precedes this delighting in the will of God, this offering of God? Speak, Lord, your servant is hearing the act of God to give the open ear. God must first prepare the hearer. And Jesus is so prepared in his incarnation with his willing nature to hear the voice of the Father. He has the open ear that qualifies him to do and to delight in the will of the Father. Isn't this really the characteristic of his entire ministry? It's unoriginal. He speaks what he hears of the Father. He comes to do the will of the Father. And in this sense, he is really the true and living Word, Not just because he is in his person declaring who the Father is, but because he hears the Father and he speaks what the Father says and himself obeys it. That's the light of the world, my friends. The Lord Jesus Christ. God is determined to renew the light in his church. And in a smaller way, we see this same pattern at work in Samuel. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. A young man, ready to hear God, whose life has really been worked upon, that he would have an open ear, calling out to God to speak, wanting to listen. In the New Covenant, we have a really startling reality, and that is that the, the, the work and the calling and even the titles of prophet, priest, and king are not just given to Jesus, but he brings his people into share in his title. It's no wonder that Jesus says again and again in the Gospels and again and again in the book of Revelation, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. You and I are called out with Jesus to be those who hear and respond in delight 
to the word of the Father. Do you see what a better administration this is? Here we have one son in the tabernacle. Here we have an entire congregation, a world filled and peopled with believers who hear, who are intended to hear. And if you're asking at this point, so then is this a prayer I'm to be praying? Am I to expect that I will hear the voice of God as Samuel does? Yes, you are. Absolutely. Now, if you're expecting that you will hear it presently with the same auditory reality that Samuel does, you will. We will hear the voice of Jesus. That day is coming. But even now, by the Spirit of God speaking in your heart, calling you out to respond with those words, describing God as your Father, already, dear believer, you hear the voice of God. You hear it in his word. You hear him calling to you, him preparing your ears, him enabling you to respond and to respond with those words, Lord, speak. If it means conviction, if it means change, if it means trial and suffering for me, if it means the greatest joy that I can experience in this life, whatever it is, Lord, you speak, I will listen. This is the sum. One way to summarize all true Religion, as it's put in the great Shema in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. And then what does God do? He declares his being, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And then he speaks of our response in love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Do you see here? Hearing, loving, responding to God entwined. This is what God does for every true believer As it says in Song of Songs, the bride calling out, I hear the voice of my beloved, chapter 2, verse 8. Behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. You are meant to hear God. You are meant to hear and to rejoice, to be enlightened, to see again, to hear again, to experience and taste and see his goodness. That message is the message of the entire Bible. Proverbs 1 through 9 Tell us again and again, my son, listen to your father's instruction. God does not make it difficult for us to hear him. The creation itself, just walk outside tonight, and everything outdoors that you'll behold is declaring from morning to evening, again and again, his glories, his worthiness, his loveliness, and even your own heart, your nature, your image reflects his law, his character, and he's spoken to you in the word of God. If we do not hear him, it is not because he is not speaking. If we do not hear and rejoice, we may not say, well, God really isn't there. I don't think he is speaking. The one who hears knows he has been prepared and the spirit of God enables him to hear the voice of Jesus calling in the scriptures to recognize his reality his authority his majesty his glory his worthiness his love his beauty his righteousness and all that he is an unbeliever might say well I haven't had that experience of God speaking to me in the reading of the Bible or in the preaching of the word of God I don't recognize God speaking to me, so it must not be true. Isn't this how we tend to think of things? I haven't experienced, so it must not be true. Maybe you haven't, but you still don't get to say, there must not be birds because I'm deaf to their singing. God speaks 
Samuel hears the voice of God. It says early on, verse 7, he doesn't know God. He hasn't yet heard the voice of the Lord. He hears he still doesn't recognize us. But what does he finally do? Remarkably, in response to Eli, he says, Lord, speak. And should we just do that, Lord, speak, then our whole life will be transformed. Not that long ago, I was speaking to a friend who told me of how he was converted from Hinduism. He couldn't go to church. All the obstacles were there. I don't know if you remember hearing this. He wanted to go to church. He was invited to church. And finally, he prayed and said, God of the Bible, if you're real and true, make it possible for me to get to church. And suddenly, his schedule completely cleared up. And he made it to church. And eventually, he was converted. Time after time after time, those who desire and are worked upon by the Spirit of God to hear his voice, he will make it known. It is only our natural hardness that makes it impossible to hear. If God is speaking in all creation, in his word, continually, day-to-day, pouring out speech, consider how hard our hearts must be. What a great act of the Spirit it must be to make us hear again. We should never think, even if it is, and sometimes we tend to, to make this a small thing. If our children come to Christ, we should never think to ourselves, that's a small thing. I was expecting that there in the church. It is a supernatural work of the miracle-working God to open the ears of the deaf. Now, what God says to Samuel is judgment. There will be no atonement for the sins of Eli and his sons. That's a terrifying thought to consider. He will remove their wicked priesthood. God is going to transfer the, the work of leading to Samuel. And I want you to notice particularly how Eli, having confronted Samuel, responds. It seems at first to be a godly thing, doesn't it? Down there in verse 18, he says, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. He accepts the word of the Lord, doesn't fight it, recognizes his sin is involved in this, that of his sons. He acknowledges the Lord is right. He's chosen a prophet and his judgments are right. Yes, there really are some wonderful qualities, but I really find myself unable to agree with all the myriad commentators who find this to be a really good and godly thing. I would suggest that really Eli still is utterly blind. God is speaking And he doesn't seem to have ears to hear because when God speaks of his judgments to his people, when we hear hard things from God in his word and he rebukes us, it is never that we may go despairingly to our death, but that we may turn in repentance and faith to the God who pours out his judgment for judgment-worthy sinners on his own son. If you, hear, if you hear the judgments of God, even if you hear these judgments on Eli, and all you say is, woe is me, I guess I can't do anything about it, you haven't heard. If in reading all the prophets and all the judgments that are coming upon the world, all we hear is terror and despair, we have not heard. And this is what it seems for Eli. Yes, he accepts the judgment. There's a measure of self-pity, contrition, but there's no faith in God's grace. He remains in the dark. It is good that the Lord does what pleases him. But what pleases him most is when those who are warned of his judgments turn to his grace. Have you heard? Samuel is established as the Lord's prophet, a true listener, 
one with the right ears, given ears to hear, perceiving the glory and the grace of God. He's made known, apparently, from the northernmost reaches of Israelite territory all the way to the extreme southern end. Everybody knows he's established as a prophet. He is extraordinarily significant in the life of Israel. He's mentioned in the Psalm, Psalm 99, which we read from earlier. Hebrews 11, he's spoken of. God is pleased. We get the clear message here. God is pleased to restore, to preserve, to continue the light of his word in his people through a particular man. Through a personal communication by one who is appointed to be the righteous prophet. And it isn't ultimately Samuel. And there are intimations of this. In chapter 2, we read of a priest who's going to be established forever. It isn't Samuel. Who is this priest? Who is this prophet? But the Lord Jesus Christ. The word, the light, made flesh. The Spirit of God telling us of him in the pages of Scripture. God has determined we will not be without light. Oh, that we would be such listeners. Oh, that we would really, really hear. That we would be quick to hear. We're so quick to speak. We're so quick to listen to other voices and the churches under assault from millions of opinions and ideas and voices and interpretations. Oh, that we would hear. Oh, that we would see truly that the light of Jesus would so irradiate our lives that we would walk in the light. This is a call for us to do a self-diagnosis. Is the word of God thrilling to you and to me? I recognize there are ups and downs in the Christian life. I recognize there are moments when we're discouraged, where we just have to press ahead in obedience. That's normal. But does it excite us? Does it encourage us? Do we find, maybe not every day, but do we at least find the comfort of the scriptures declaring to us, Jesus is a real savior for people like us. Friend, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Are we listening? Do we really treasure the word of God? Let him who has ears to hear, hear. Let's pray together. Oh, our God, you know the hardness of our hearts. You know how disinclined we are to listen to you, how often we are distracted from what you are saying, even in listening to a sermon, opening our Bibles, even seeking to pray. Our hearts wander so quickly. We are filled up with so many appetites and desires and messages and misinterpretations. Our eyes so quickly grow dim. Our hearing so quickly grows deaf. We plead with you, O God, to have mercy upon us. Do not let the light of this particular church grow dim, but we pray that Christ would be seen more presently, powerfully, in all of his beauty and glory as we together search the scriptures. Our God, we pray that we would not just be a people who are known for being Bible people, but that we would really be Bible people. People who know the grace, the judgment, the glory of Christ as he is given to us in Scripture. Give us that hungering and thirsting after him that you promised to quench. Give us, we ask, your word, the living word, Jesus himself, 
we ask, even as the prophet Samuel said, speak, O Lord, your servants are listening. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.